You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Well, good to see everyone today. It's so good to worship together as a church. We are, as you can tell, picking up back in our series in the Gospel of Mark. This is the sermon that was supposed to be given two weeks ago before Old Man Winter punched us all in the nose. And so we're pulling it back up and we're gonna jump back into Mark and hopefully I can bring, you, bring us back up to speed with where we are in Mark. This particular passage actually got me thinking about a time in my life that's kind of embarrassing. I, it was many, many years ago, more than 20 years ago, I was doing campus ministry not here at UT, but on another campus. And our team, our ministry team, was trying to start a ministry in the Greek system on this campus. It was an area of campus where there was not much going on spiritually. And so we had been doing the hard work, the, the arduous work of building relationships with, with students. We, we'd been sharing the gospel. We'd been making disciples. And about two years into our work, There was a big church in the next town over. It wasn't the college town we were in. It was in the next town. And this big church hired an assistant pastor named Mike. And Mike decided he was gonna come down to the campus where we were working and he was gonna lead a Bible study in the Greek system. And so he came to campus, he met some student leaders, he hung up some flyers and he started hosting meetings. Now, there was nothing about Mike, if you met him, that seemed particularly relevant to college students. He was older than all of their dads. He was kind of churchy. He was funny, but in a real goofy kind of way. And his strategy was, I'm gonna hang up some flyers and I'm gonna start having meetings and hope people will come. And you know what? They did. They came. Students loved Mike. They came, they, his meeting just grew and grew and grew to the point it became the place to be every Wednesday night on, on campus. Everything Mike touched with students turned to gold. Like people, students that we couldn't get to come to anything were coming to his meeting every week and hearing about Jesus. And you would have, you would have thought our team would have been so grateful for that that our team would have praised God for that. But I assure you, we did not. We fretted over it. We chafed over it. I actually really liked Mike. He was warm, he was friendly, he was genuine, he was a great guy. But his rapid success in ministry in the area of campus that I was working in for years did not make me feel all warm and fuzzy and happy inside. It upset me. Mike had come to campus as an ally in the cause of Christ, but we saw him as an adversary. What was going on? Like in my heart, what was going on? I love Jesus and I wanted students to come to know Jesus. That was my job description. And yet I was very resistant to Mike's ministry to the point where I would, it would keep me up at night. It's embarrassing to admit that. But that's the period of my life that I immediately think of when I read this text, this account in Mark chapter nine. 
we've been looking at this section in the Gospel of Mark from Mark chapter 8 to Mark chapter 10. It's the section in the Gospel where Jesus and his disciples are on the road to Jerusalem, where Jesus is going to die. And the pattern in this section goes like this. Jesus will teach on something or he'll do something extraordinary. Then the disciples will respond by doing something dumb or or saying something dumb to, to reveal that they don't fully understand Jesus yet. They're still blind in some way. And then Jesus will have to correct their blindness. And today their blindness has to do with their view of ministry. They have a really narrow view of God's work in the world. And so Jesus has to open their eyes to a wider view. Jesus has to expand their vision, so to speak. And I think he has to expand our vision too. So let's look first at the disciples' narrow view of God's work. You see it there in verse 38. Look at Mark 9, verse 38. John said to Jesus, so one of the disciples, one of the one of the closest disciples of Jesus said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, there is a double irony in what John is saying here. First of all, remember what happened in the passage before this. In the passage before this, John and the disciples are arguing with one another about who's the greatest. They're ranking each other against each other about who's the greatest. And so Jesus gives them a little object lesson in what true greatness is. We, we see that in verse 36. Look at Mark 9, 36. Here's the object lesson. Jesus took a child, so someone who's the lowest ranked in their society, a little child, and he put that child in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, He said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So here's the lesson. A disciple demonstrates true greatness by receiving all God's children in the same way that Jesus is receiving this child with open arms without any thought of their importance, their influence, or their impressiveness. Jesus says, when you receive people in my name, emphasis on in my name, you receive me because they belong to me, because they bear my name. Now, did the disciples get the lesson? Apparently not, because Jesus is probably still holding that little child when John comes up to him and says, hey, Jesus, we saw someone trying to cast out demons in your name, in your name. And we tried to stop him. And there's the irony. Jesus had just told them to receive other children of God in his name, even the least impressive of children. But the disciples had seen a man doing a really impressive work in his name and they didn't even receive him. They rejected him. They did the exact opposite of what Jesus had said to do. The second ironic thing about what John says here is that the disciples had recently just failed in casting out a demon. Remember earlier in Mark chapter nine, there was a little boy who had an evil spirit that was tormenting him and his dad brought the little boy to Jesus and said, hey, can you help me? Because the disciples couldn't cast out the demon, right? But here they are now in this story trying to stop a man who is succeeding 
in the very thing that they had failed at. Why are they trying to stop him? Well, verse 38 tells us. John says, because he was not following us. Because he's not one of us. Because he's not part of our group. He's not part of the authorized group of disciples. The disciples are suspicious of any ministry that's not directly authorized by the the Jesus headquarters. And they see themselves as the primary quality control officers for the Jesus headquarters. They are the ones who put the stamp of approval on valid ministry. This is authentically a work of Jesus because we say it is. They're suspicious of anything else. It's interesting, the same exact thing happened in the Old Testament when Moses was leading God's people. Numbers chapter 11 there were two guys named Eldad and Medad, which I think are great names. If I had two sons, I would think about Eldad and Medad for names. Uh, but Eldad and Medad started prophesying in the camp because the Spirit of God had rested upon them, and they were speaking for God like a prophet would, even though they were not officially prophets like Moses was. But this really bothered uh, Joshua, who was Moses' assistant, and so he tried to stop them. Numbers chapter 11, verse 28, Joshua said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. Stop them from prophesying. But Moses replied, are you jealous, Joshua, for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. Meaning, what's up with the jealousy, Joshua? You don't have to protect my name. You don't have to protect my position. My ministry is not being threatened here by these guys. See, the disciples in Mark chapter nine are acting just like Joshua did. They're suspicious of any ministry that they haven't authorized. They see a man who's casting out a demon as as a threat. They see him as an enemy, which is another irony because, because the man who's casting out demons knows who the real enemy is. The real enemy is Satan, which is why he's casting out demons in Jesus' name. But the disciples completely miss it. The disciples don't see who the true enemy is. They see the man as the enemy. And so they want Jesus to hinder him, restrain him. They are opposing the work of God through this man because they've got some weird notion that they're the only ones authorized to work in Jesus' name as if the mission of Jesus is to come into the world and form a small band of homogeneous followers who are just like one another, rather than to come into the world to defeat the cosmic enemy of the whole human race. So they are grossly underestimating the mission of Jesus with their narrow view of ministry. They're minimizing the mission of Jesus with their narrow view of ministry, which is so easy to do as a follower of Christ, isn't it? I think we can see ourselves in the disciples. We can see ourselves in their narrowness. If verse 38 was an acorn, then the whole history of the Christian church would be the oak tree, where the tendencies that we see here in the disciples come to to fruition in our own experience. For example, one of the things we see here in the disciples is pride, an overinflated view of their own group like our way is the right way our way of ministry is the valid way of ministry now listen if you were a part of a church or a tradition or or, or a denomination and you like the way that you do things 
That, uh, you're, and you're used to doing things in a certain way. That's a good thing. But the downside is uh, you begin to see your way is the standard for all other people and you begin to write off other groups. I mean, sometimes I get on Twitter, I get on reformed Twitter and the Presbyterians and the Baptists are just like dunking on each other all over the place. I don't know if it's because I follow a lot of reformed and Presbyterian and, uh, and reformed Baptist thinkers, but they're just dunking on each other. And, 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 and the dunk fest gives you the impression that God might not be able to work through a particular tradition if they have the wrong view of baptism or if they have the wrong ecclesiastical structure. See, when we limit the work of God to our tradition, our denomination, our style, our network, our preferences, that's pride. It's sectarian pride. Another thing we see here is suspicion. John's like, we don't know that guy, so we don't trust him. Why are we so quick to distrust and be suspicious of other believers who are different than us, who have different preferences, different styles, different ways of doing ministry? We're not comfortable with differences. One pastor makes the observation that distance demonizes. I think that's right. The greater the relational distance there is between us and another group, another church, another ministry, the greater the likelihood we're gonna to start to form narratives about that particular group, sometimes that cast them in a negative light or see them as a threat. And that's unhealthy suspicion. One last thing that I'll mention that we see here in the disciples is jealousy. Jealousy, they're being territorial. They're acting like they're trying to protect the name of Jesus, but they're really just trying to defend their own name. They're jealous for their own name. Look at verse 38. John says, we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Not because he wasn't following you, Jesus. He wasn't following us. That's the brand we're concerned about, the us brand. I think what really bothers them is that the man is succeeding in ministry even though he's not one of them. They're jealous of his success. I think sometimes it's really hard to, and we really struggle with celebrating ministry success in others. I mean, I gotta ask myself, if something significant happens in the city of Austin for the kingdom of God, but it happens primarily through another church, happens through the Austin Stone, happens through the well, happens through All Saints, happens through Christ Church, happens through Austin Ridge, I gotta ask myself, do I celebrate that? Or do I have a tinge of jealousy in my heart, wishing that Providence was getting a little credit for this big thing that happened? Am I jealous for the name of Jesus? Or am I jealous for the name of Providence or whatever else I'm associated with? The disciples have a narrow view of God's work in the world. They can't see beyond their own little band of followers, how they do things, who they know, what their successes are. And so Jesus is gonna open their eyes to a wider view of God's work in the world. Look at how Jesus expands their vision. Uh, I want you to, let's look at Jesus's wide view of God's work. Jesus actually flat out opposes their exclusivism, their narrow view of ministry, and then he flings open the gates of ministry wide. Look at verse 39, Mark 9, 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him. Do not stop the man who's casting out the demons. For no one who does a mighty work in my name 
will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Some translations say whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And so two things I want us to see here. Uh, Number one, Jesus has a wide view of who can participate in ministry, who can do ministry. And then number two, he has a wide view of what counts as ministry, what counts as kingdom work. First, look at, the, look at how expansive his view is of who can participate in, in ministry. In verse 39, he says, hey, I know y'all don't know this guy, but he's doing a mighty work in my name. He, he's, he's honoring my name. He's exalting my name. And that's the criteria for authentic kingdom work. My name being lifted up. My name being glorified. And if this guy is honoring the authority of my name to do this powerful work, then he's not gonna turn around in the next breath and curse my name. It wouldn't make sense. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse three. No one speaking in the spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. Because the spirit does not work against Jesus. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Because only the Holy Spirit enables someone to recognize that Jesus is Lord. And so Jesus is saying, this is a work of the Spirit. Now, of course, Jesus knows that there are gonna be people who misuse his name for their own gain, for evil purposes. He knows that. But I think he's saying to the disciples, hey, you let me sort that out. It's not your prerogative to police everyone who's ministering in my name. You just need to know verse 40, which says, whoever is not against us is for us. What does that mean? That means there's only two sides, for us and against us. There's only two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And Jesus is saying, hey, quit trying to subdivide who can participate in God's work into more and more little kingdoms. There's only two kingdoms. Whoever is not against us is for us. Do you see how broad that is? Whoever, whoever is clearly proclaiming the name of Christ can do ministry. Not just a select group, not just those who are exactly like us. Whoever is exalting the name of Jesus and clearly acknowledging him as Lord. It's a wide view of who can do ministry. Second, Jesus has a wide view of what counts as ministry. Look at verse 41. He says, truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, what it really says is because you bear the name of Christ, will by no means lose his rewards. Some translations say, whoever gives you a cup of water in my name, there's that phrase that keeps coming up, in my name, will not lose his rewards. Reward, And so he's saying it's not just the big works in my name that count as ministry, like exorcism or healing or, or, or preaching. He's like, even the smallest acts of hospitality in my name count as kingdom work. Even everyday acts of kindness in his name matter. Even giving a cup of water to someone because they belong to Christ is significant. Do you see what that means? That means that anyone can participate in ministry. Like even the poorest of the poor can participate because they can donate a cup of water to the cause. 
This means that there's this wide range of possibilities when it comes to participating in the mission of Jesus. See, the body of Christ has a wide range of gifts, a wide range of abilities, a wide range of resources, and Jesus wants the disciples to know that even the simplest act of service in his name counts. Jesus widens their view of God's work. And so I think there's a, ca- a Catholicity in the spirit of Jesus that, that often does not exist in, in the church. And you know what I mean by Catholicity. Uh, I mean, he has a wide, all-embracing spirit, not a narrow spirit. He's saying, when it comes to my mission, what matters most is whether or not my name is being lifted up. That's the primary thing. So people who minister in my name might be Baptist, they might might be Presbyterian, they might be Methodist, they might be Anglican, they might be Roman Catholic, they might be Pentecostal. They might differ from you when it comes to secondary matters or tertiary matters. But the question is, do they share with you in the primary matter of proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord? If so, then don't hinder them. Don't give your energy to trying to stop them. Don't dunk on them on Twitter. Jesus is also saying, all kinds of ministry in my name counts as kingdom work. All kinds. Femi was talking about all kinds of things they're doing in Lagos, Nigeria. Orphan care, evangelism, sheltering the homeless, teaching the scriptures, providing for refugees, even, even something as simple as providing water for someone or a hot shower for someone last week in our city was significant, especially if done in the name of Jesus. Because Jesus says in Matthew 25, if you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren who belong to me, you did it to me because they're connected to me. They bear my name. Jesus has a big tent for ministry. The disciples, the disciples are quick to draw divisions among Christians, but Jesus is quick to unite those who are ministering in his name. And then he ends in verse 42, by giving them a, a stern warning. And we dare not skip over this warning in verse 42. Look at it. Verse 42. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, to, to stumble, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This verse literally says, whoever scandalizes one of these little ones, whoever trips them up. A scandalon in those days was a rock that would be in your path that you didn't see and you tripped over the scandalon. And what Jesus is saying here is it would be better to tie a huge rock around your neck and jump into the sea than to actually be a rock that trips up one of these little ones in their faith. In other words, you and I should care so much about protecting the fragile faith, especially of new believers, young believers, people that are not yet believers or who are coming to Christ, that we would be rather drowned than to hurt their faith in some way, than to, to, than to prohibit them from, from coming to faith in Christ in some way, to exclude them in some way. I think this is a warning for the church today. Like if our pride, if our exclusivism, 
if our jealousy of other churches and other ministries, if our divisions, if our intramural theological debates, if our intramural political debates cause little ones who might believe in Jesus to get tripped up in their faith or reject the faith, then we're in deep trouble because we are opposing the work of Jesus all the while acting like we're doing the work of Jesus. I've been reading a novel called Silence by Shusaku Endo. It's a Japanese author. It's an excellent book. It's a story about Jesuit missionaries in Japan in the 17th century. And at one point, the main character talks about how Christians from different countries had come to Japan and they were, they were confusing the Japanese who were hearing the gospel from them. The, the author says, the Protestant countries like England and Holland and the Catholic countries like Spain and Portugal had come to Japan and jealous of one another's progress, they had spoken slander about one another to the Japanese. Isn't that amazing? Christians came to the country and they're dogging each other to the Japanese. He said the missionaries too, out of rivalry, had at one time strictly forbidden their Japanese converts to consort with the English and the Dutch. The missionaries were preaching a gospel that was supposed to be about unity and reconciliation, but their lives were preaching something else. Division, rivalry. Their narrow view of ministry was tripping up the Japanese believers and Jesus was opposed to that. He's opposed to it. I think in our story today, Jesus is trying to tell the disciples and us to stop dividing over ministry differences. Like we can embrace those who are ministering in ways that are different from us. And we can actually celebrate anytime the name of Jesus is exalted and lifted up. We don't have to protect our name. We don't have to make, try to make a name for ourselves because we already have a name. We have his name. We belong to him. I think verse 41 should be so comforting to the disciples and to us because Jesus says in verse 41, you belong to me. You belong to me. You bear the name of Christ. See, our worth, our significance, our joy aren't found in our ministry success, but in the fact that we belong to Jesus. And we didn't acquire that position of significance in the kingdom because of our own greatness. We acquired it because of the grace of God, because of the grace of God toward us in Christ. He gave himself for us so that we could bear his name and so that we could have the privilege of ministering in his name. In 2014, uh, I got word that Mike had passed away. This, the pastor I told you about at the beginning. And I hadn't kept up with Mike over the years, but for some reason his death really hit me. His death really hit me. You know what I kept thinking? I kept thinking, how silly does my past rivalry with Mike seem now? Because, because he's with Jesus now. He's praising the name of Jesus with full knowledge. And I'm a pastor now in a different city. And I'm get, I have the privilege of lifting up the name of Jesus in, in this city. And I thought, you know, how, how small my view of the kingdom was back then. All that fretting over Mike's success. What a narrow view of ministry I had. Because now... Jesus is really clear to Mike 
really clear. And he's increasingly clear to me, which makes my past jealousy seem so small when I think about the kingdom that Mike's experiencing in full. And thinking that made me want to live out the words of John the Baptist. Remember what John the Baptist says in John chapter three? He says, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. I thought, I want that to be true of me. The name of Jesus must increase. My name and, and, and the name of any organization or church or ministry that I'm associated with must decrease. That's a great prayer for us as a church. Jesus, increase your name through us. Exalt your name through us and, ma- and make us the kind of people who celebrate and help and pray for and come alongside anyone who's exalting the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.